helped defend the church by becoming a supporter of Family Life International. Family Life International presents Father Nicholas Grace of the Institute of the Incarnate Word. To learn more about the Institute, go to www.ive.org. We come to our third talk on the Holy Eucharist. So let's begin with a prayer, invocation of the Holy Spirit, that what we hear we may grasp and we may ponder and become truly food for our souls. And that as a result, we have a great um, love, a deep love for our blessed Lord present in the Holy Eucharist. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of thy faithful, enkindle in them the fire of thy love. Send forth the Spirit, and they shall be created, and thou shalt renew the face of the earth. Let us pray. O God, who by the light of the Holy Spirit did instruct the hearts of the faithful, grant by the same Holy Spirit, may be truly wise and ever rejoice in his consolation through Christ our Lord. Our Lady Seat of Wisdom, St. Joseph. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Um, this evening, what I want to do is to explore the Eucharist as a sacrament and a sacrifice. We speak of the Mass as the holy sacrifice of the Mass. And so there is a connection between the Eucharist and the Mass. So if we begin with the examination of the two, the Eucharist is a sacrament and it is a sacrifice. And these two words, sacrament and sacrifice, need to be explained. Although the, the, um, sac the sacrament and the sacrifice of the Eucharist are performed in the same consecration, when the bread and the wine are consecrated, at that moment we have a sacrifice and we have a sacrament. It occurs at that same moment, yet they are different in the two different concepts. The Eucharist is a sacrament. Why? Because in it we receive Christ. That is, we are nourished when we eat. And so it is nourishment for our souls. It is a sacrifice because in the Eucharist, we offer a gift to God. So the difference is the sacrament we eat and are spiritually nourished. In the sacrifice, we offer a gift to God. The Eucharist has the effect of a sacrament on those who receive it. Baptism is a sacrament on those who receive it. Confirmation, the same. Marriage, the same, and so on. It has the effect of a sacrifice 
in those who offer it or for those for whom it is offered. Because we are offering this to God. What are we offering to God? Ahul, his son. This is the only sacrifice that is acceptable to, his, to God, his son. And he receives it for the redemption of the world, of creation. This is what our Lord himself said. He is going to lay down his life for his friends. And so his death makes the reparation for the sins of the whole world, as we, we were saying in the, the, the Divine Mercy. There is no other sacrifice that can forgive sin except that of our blessed Lord on, on Calvary. We read that in the letter to the Hebrews. Bull's blood, goat's blood, that cannot forgive sin. They looked forward to the sacrifice of Christ on Calvary, but in themselves they could not forgive sin. There, of course, the, it is God himself who will determine um, the, uh, the, the conditions under which sin could be forgiven. And no human, no creature, let alone any human creature, could possibly make reparation for sin. It could only be done by the God-man, God himself. And so when we speak of the Eucharist, we have to, always to remember that it is a sacrifice we're offering to God. Yet at the same time, it is God who's coming to us to nourish our souls. And that's why the Mass is so important. When we come to Mass, we're not coming just to a community gathering, a community meal. We're coming to worship God and to offer the only sacrifice capable of forgiving us our sins. This is done through the action of the priest. Yet, even the priest himself is an instrument because he's acting as the instrument of Christ Jesus himself. In the person of Christ, he's offering the sacrifice. And so the congregation, those who gather, the faithful, all of you, you participate in that sacrifice to the degree that your faith allows you. And as I mentioned, on Calvary, whilst our Lord on the cross was offering his life, at the foot of the cross stood those who believed. Each, again, according to the degree, the magnitude of their faith. And so, St. John tells us, at the foot of the cross stood his mother. She stood there. What was she doing? She was offering the sacrifice, or better still, she, was, she joined in the sacrifice that Christ was offering of himself to his eternal Father for the redemption of the world. And then we have Mary Magdalene, who's always seen 
depicted at the foot of the cross, embracing it on her knees. We have John, again representing the priesthood, who stood there with our Blessed Lady. Each one offering according to the degree of their faith. And so also when we come to Mass, we should be offering that sacrifice to God, joining with the saints, which, they, which all the saints did. So we look then at the Eucharistic sacrifice of the Mass. There were types of it already predicted in the Old Testament. So, for instance, in fact, the earliest one we have is found in Genesis 14 from verse 18. And it's the story of Abraham, Abraham's encounter with Melchizedek. Abraham had heard that his nephew, Lot, um, had been captured and he went to rescue him. He won the battle and in verse 17 of the 14th chapter we read, After his return from the defeat of Ched Olarama and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him in the valley of Sheva and Melchizedek this is where I should have begun, actually, verse 18. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abraham by God Most High, maker of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hands. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. So we have the encounter. Melchizedek, Melchizedek comes out. He's sent in the letter to the Hebrews, we have more detail of the encounter. But essentially, Melchizedek comes out and he brings bread and wine, which he offers as a sacrifice in thanksgiving. To whom? He offered in thanksgiving for Abraham. Abraham was the patriarch. He had received the promises from God. The promised Messiah would come from his loins. Yet Melchizedek blessed him and offered the sacrifice. It wasn't a case, some people have said, that what Melchizedek did was to bring out the bread and wine because he had to feed the, the soldiers. Not so. The letter to the Hebrews makes it very clear that it was not a case of refreshments, rather it was a sacrifice. And then we know from Psalm 109 and that Christ is a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. And then the letter to the Hebrews, the fifth chapter, um, verse 6, we, uh, and this is where the psalm is quoted, 
So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made high priest. He was appointed by him who said, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As it says in another place, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. And then in the sixth, um, sorry, in the seventh chapter, we read, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the God Most High, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings, and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned the tent of everything. He, Melchizedek, he is first by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, and has neither beginning of days nor end of life. But resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. So the emphasis on the priesthood of Melchizedek which is, of course, a type, anticipation of the priesthood of Christ, which is forever. The second um, prophecy we have regarding the sacrifice of the Mass is that from the prophet Malachi. And God is speaking to the Jewish priests. And in this one, he... This is the first chapter, first chapter of the um, book of Malachi, from verse 10. Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors, that I might not kindle fire upon my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts. And I will not accept an offering from your hand. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name is great among the nations. And in every place, incense is offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name is great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. So here, the prophet is, the God is speaking through the prophet, is promising that there will be a new sacrifice and that it will be offered with incense, and it will be a clean oblation, a pure sacrifice. And, uh, and this will happen after the abolition of the Jewish sacrificial cult. Now, there were possible, there were possibly other sacrifices, such as the pagan sacrifices. Is that what God is referring to? The answer is no because these sacrifices were offered to idols. And St. Paul, in first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 10, says that they were impure sacrifices. They were not clean. The Jews, who had been scattered throughout the world in what is called the diaspora, some of them offered the sacrifice as well. But one, it was not everywhere. And secondly, more important, it was unlawful because the, for the Jews, for the Israelites, there was only one place that sacrifice was permitted, and that was in the temple in Jerusalem. That's the only place that, that, the, that the Jewish sacrifices could be offered lawfully. God had made that very clear to Moses. He says, when you come into the land, I will show you the place where I want the sacrifice to be offered. 
and it was the temple. They did not offer sacrifices in the synagogues, only in the temple. Some, however, in the diaspora did do it, and the Jews themselves regarded it as unlawful. So that leaves the last one, because from the prophet Malachi, we deduced that the sacrifice happens after the messianic period, after Christ has come. So it cannot be the sacrifice of the cross, because that sacrifice was offered once in one place on Calvary. So it could only be the sacrifice of the Mass, which is offered throughout the world, morally, it's everywhere, and it is a clean oblation for two reasons. One, the sacrifice, the sacrificial gift itself is perfect, that is Christ. That's, that's whom we're offering at the Mass, we're offering Christ to God the Father. We're offering His Son. And secondly, the person who offers it is clean, Christ. He's the one who's offering Himself through the instrument of the priest and also through your cooperation, through your association, from your participation. So you see, your presence at Mass is not something that is um, perfunctory. You're not just there because we have to worship God. You're there because you're actually actively participating in that one supreme sacrifice, the only sacrifice that can take away sin, the only sacrifice that can reconcile us with God. So even if you are in a state of sin and you come to Mass, you are still participating in the sacrifice. Like the good thief, who was in sin. And he looked, and through all the suffering, he saw one who was suffering more. Through all his suffering, he saw someone who was suffering more, and said, we are only paying for what we have done wrong. This man is innocent. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. This man was a sinner, a robber and a murderer. But his faith, he confessed his sins, we've done wrong. He asked for mercy and he received it. This day, this very day, you will be with me in paradise. All of us are sinners and all of us are in that condition of the good thief. So let us make use of it. Living, being in a state of sin and having circumstances in which we cannot escape, as was brought up in the, in the question about Maurice Letizia, being in that condition does not exclude us from participating in the Mass. If we cannot receive, well, let us ask God to, in, to, to create the circumstances in which we can receive, and He will. So, we have then the sacrifice of the Mass, a pure victim and a perfect priest, a perfect high priest. And then we have, lastly, the prophet Isaiah, who proclaims a new priesthood made, taken from 
the Gentiles. And this is in Isaiah 66, 21. So then we have the Eucharistic sacrifice of the Mass, which was foreseen in the Old Testament. The Mass was instituted by our Lord as a sacrifice on the night he was betrayed, as we well know. And he, with his disciples, prepared and did celebrate the, um, the Passover. The Passover of the Jews, for us, the Last Supper. He went through the ritual with the Paschal lamb, the herbs, the bread, and, and so on. And when that was over, he then gave us the elements, the essential elements of the Mass. It was the consecration of the bread and wine. A sacrifice requires the shedding, the giving of something that's valuable to us. And in, for the forgiveness of sins, it requires the shedding of blood. Again, the letter to Hebrews says, there's no forgiveness of sins without the shedding of blood. Christ our Lord would shed his blood on Good Friday. But on Holy Thursday, the day he was betrayed, he was going to anticipate it. And he would do this symbolically with the consecration of bread and wine. Symbols of, a, they were symbols of the real separation of his body and blood the next day. So we have the two consecrations, the bread and the wine, separately to, to, to symbolize his sacrifice when his blood and body were separated from each other. The words of institution themselves testify to the sacrifice because he says, take this, eat, eat all of you, this is my body which is given for you. Well, if you give somebody something, you're making a sacrifice because it's yours, but you're giving it away to them. They need it. So in, in, the, in the consecration of bread, he makes it very clear that he's given it He's given his body for us. And then, more clearly perhaps, in the consecration of the chalice, of the wine, he says, this is the chalice of my blood, the blood of the new and eternal covenant, which will be poured out for you and for many. These words are sacrificial. In the Old Testament, whenever they speak of sacrifice, they talk of the pouring out of the blood or of the liquid, which is called a libation. St. Paul says um, something similar. He says, my life is poured out like a libation. Literally, when you just pour the liquid away. This is how he served the Lord. The, the blood of the covenant, he says this is the blood of the new covenant, that also is sacrificial language. It is the blood of sacrifice. We also have the sacrifice, we also know that the sacrifice is present. It's something that's done now and is done. You make the sacrifice, the animal is killed, finish. It's transitory, very brief. But our Lord did something more. 
he said to the disciples, to the apostles, do this in memory of me. And so that single act on Calvary, he now enabled the apostles to perpetuate through time and space. Because whilst it was on Calvary in one particular place, now it could be in, throughout the world, as the prophet Malachi had said. And at one time, on, Holy, on Good Friday, now it could be offered every day and every hour of the day. Yet it is the same sacrifice, not a different one, but that same one which is commemorated. Do it in commemoration of me. In Hebrews 13.10, we read, we have an altar where they have no power who eat, where they have no power to eat, who serve the tabernacle. And here's a distinction between the Jewish priesthood and the Christian priesthood, or the priesthood of Melchizedek and the priesthood of Aaron. So we have, St. Paul, an altar an altar is only used for sacrifice. There's no other use. That's why you offer a sacrifice at the altar. And so when the, we're told we have an altar, then this is what is referring to, that the Mass itself is a sacrifice. And in 1 Corinthians 10, 16-21, St. Paul draws a parallel between part, the partaking of the Eucharist and the partaking of Jewish or pagan sacrificial foods. Therefore, the Eucharist is a sacrificial food. And now I shall read it. So it's 1 Corinthians 10, 16 to 21. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, and we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices partners in the altar? The question is rhetorical. What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything, or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagan sacrifice they offer to demons, not to God. I do not want you to be partners of demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake at the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Or are we stronger than he? Well, if we partake in, if he's saying essentially that to partake in the pagan sacrifice is in fact um, worship, to partake in the Eucharist is also sacrificial worship. So he's drawing that parallel. So the Eucharist is a sacrificial meal. We now go to the Eucharist as a sacrament. And again, uh, to remind you what a sacrament is. A sacrament is an outward sign of an inward grace ordained by Jesus Christ. Just these three things. An external thing we do, an internal consequence established by our Lord.
The outward sign of baptism is the water being poured. Words accompany the water. I baptize you in the name of God, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Our Lord himself established it. It's very clear. Same for the Eucharist. This is my body. This is the chalice of my blood. So we have the matter, in the case of baptism, water. The form, which is the words. In the Eucharist, we have the matter, which is bread and wine, and the words. Our Lord instituted it. The inward sign, or put it another way, the sacraments can also be regarded as a promise. If we have, if we perform what our Lord tells us, he promises us the corresponding grace. So he says, um, you cannot enter into the kingdom of heaven unless you're reborn. So if we're reborn, it's a promise, you will enter. Yesterday we spoke about the promise he made to us in the Eucharist. If you eat, you will have eternal life. And he cannot deceive us. He is truth itself. So we believe him. So then the outward sign of the Eucharist is the bread and the wine. That is called the matter. And the words of consecration are the form. The effect is a permanent result, namely, that we will, that even now as we receive it, we have eternal life, and that he will raise us up on the last day. So it's the promise of the resurrection. The inward grace is indicated and operated by the outward sign. So the, the, the once the sign is complete, the inward grace is already working. And for the Eucharist, this is eternal life, the promise of eternal life, as we read in John 6, 27. It was instituted by Christ himself because he said, do this in commemoration of me. So some thoughts about the Eucharist. Christ is present in the Eucharist. And if we think for a moment, if we have some bread, the substance the nature of the thing is bread. All of it is bread. If you take a little crumb, it's a bread crumb. And it's bread all the way through. The same for the wine. If you have the smallest drop of wine, it is wine. Agreed? It's not anything else. When the words of consecration are pronounced, every single crumb is transubstantiated into the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Christ. And the same for the chalice. Every single drop of wine in the chalice has been changed into his blood. And Christ is whole and entire in, every, in, 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 the, in the bread, 
as well as, or I should say, under the appearance of bread, as well as under the appearance of the wine. So if you break it, if you break the horse, he is there, whole and entire. You haven't broken Christ, because each little crumb, the whole Christ is present. The whole Christ. This is why it's so tragic that some people, when they receive the Eucharist, they seem to have forgotten that they are in their hands, they have the whole Christ. And this is why we should be particularly careful and not treat the Eucharist as if it were ordinary bread. Because if there are crumbs and you drop it, who is being trampled on the ground? It's not done intentionally, but it's done in ignorance, which is sad. And when this happens, of course, we begin to lose faith. And if we lose faith, we forget we're not receiving a thing, we're receiving the second person of the Blessed Trinity. So that's one thought. Another thought is, why bread and wine? Scientifically, um, bread contains all of the minerals, or most of the minerals that our body needs, except sugar. The wine contains the sugar. And it, it, it's, it, if when we receive ordinary bread and wine, we receive all of the nutrients our body needs. We don't receive insufficient amounts, of course, but everything the body needs is contained in bread and wine. And so God, don't forget, God knows what he's doing. As, as the Holy Father says, God is full of surprises. I don't think he's full of surprises. I just think that his creation is so perfect that we are surprised at what um, he has done. So scientifically, to begin with, the bread and wine contains all the nutrients that we need. But why did our Lord choose these two? Well, we can only speculate. And when, you, when you're meditating, it's something that you could you think about. How is bread made? Well, it's, as you know, it comes from wheat. The wheat consists of it's a grain. And thousands, millions of grains are taken. And what are they crushed? And it's, it has to be pure, so no other, nothing is mixed with it. It's then mixed with a little water, a little, and then the dough is baked. Equally, the grapes, individual grapes are taken, and they're crushed, and they mix with a little water, and they're fermented, and you have wine. St. Paul tells us that we, who are many, are made one in the body of Christ. So in a sense, we are represented by each wheat grain, by each grape. What did our Lord, what happened to our Lord? He bore our sins and so he was crushed by the weight of the cross, the weight of our sins. He was crushed on Calvary and his 
body, his, the, 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 his blood was poured out of his body. He was baked in the heat of the passion. And what does he say to us? Take up your cross and follow me. And so we in the Eucharist, we can join with him. We can bring all of our sufferings, our difficulties, the troubles in our life, our anxieties, our concerns about our parents or about our children, about our brothers, our sisters. All of these things that afflict us, that cause us distress, which we cannot solve. Our own sinfulness, our habits, the things that impede our spiritual progress, we could bring all of them. We can come to the Lord crushed. We can show him our wounds. We can ask to be like him. And then we become one with him. And that he will transubstantiate, we can dare to use the word, all of our sufferings. And we can be rise with him glorious. That's the purpose of the Eucharist. That we become like him. We are transfigured as he is. We become a new creation, a new creature, St. Paul says in Christ. That is the purpose of the Eucharist, to make us new creatures, perfect creatures in Christ. And there are many other things we can think about in this, uh, when we speak about the Eucharist. Our Lord wants us to believe He gives us signs, he worked miracles. We have to be careful though. Remember, St. Paul says that signs are for unbelievers. They're not for believers. So yes, signs are good. Because if God gives, it must be good. But as our Lord said to Thomas, you believe because you can see me. Blessed are those who have not seen yet believe. So for us, who are like Thomas, we need something. And the Lord has on many occasions given us signs that he is really and truly present in the Eucharist. The first recorded miracle of the Eucharist is, is that of Lanciano. This is the first and the greatest of Eucharistic miracles. It occurred 12 centuries ago, 1,200 more years ago, 8th century, in the little church of Legontion in Italy. And the story is that a Brazilian monk was on his way to Rome, and he, he was celebrating Mass in, in this church. And of course, as of all of us, now he says, is Christ really present? And going through this ritual, it's the same day after day. Is he really present? But his doubt didn't, his, his doubt wasn't frivolous. He really wanted to know. And lo and behold, during the Mass, as he completed the twofold consecration, the horse changed into living flesh in his hand and the wine into living blood. And it coagulated 
it, it, it solidified, the blood solidified into five globules. representing the five wounds. As you can imagine, he was very disturbed. The color was that uh, resembling blood, the sort of earthy, um, uh, ochre, yellow, yellow color. Well, of course, the, there was immediately an investigation and the, it, was, it was found to be human flesh and human blood. But 1,200 years ago, you think, oh, well, people were simple in those days. They believe anything, and how do we know it's true? Well, we know it's true because the miracle still exists even today. The first scientific investigation occurred in 1574. So that would be 800 years later. And then there was another investigation in 1970, which is 40 years ago. And in this, there was another, um, uh, uh, another investigation in 1981. And this one was under very, very rigid scientific um, conditions. And it was carried out by Professor Linoni, who was a professor of anatomy and pathologi pathologi pathological um, histology, and in chemistry and clinical microscopy. He was assisted by Professor Batelli of the University of Siena. And their investigation, their analysis was done under very stringent scientific conditions. What did they find? They found that the flesh is real flesh and the blood is real blood. They found that the flesh and the blood belong to the human species. In other words, it's human blood. That the flesh consists of muscle tissue from the heart. That the flesh we see, and it is the section of us was taken, it comes from the myocardium and the endocardium, the vagus nerve, and also the left ventricle of the heart. In other words, the flesh is a heart, complete in all its essential structure. The flesh and the blood of the same blood type, namely AB. And what's more, it is the same blood type as is found on the Shroud of Turin. The, in the blood, there were found to be proteins of the same normal proportions, percentage-wise, as are found in the cerebroproteic makeup of flesh in normal blood. In the blood, there was also found to be the minerals, the chlorides, phosphates, magnesium, potassium, sodium, and calcium. The preservation of the flesh and the blood, which are left in their natural state for 12 centuries and exposed to the action of the atmosphere and biological agents, remains an extraordinary phenomenon. In other words, the flesh has not decomposed 
It is as if it were living flesh. And that's not all. There are other scientific, this is only part of the report. Huh? The, the five globules of blood have a strange property. They weigh the same, whether you take one globule by itself or all five together, same weight. If you take two, it's the same weight. If you take four, the same weight. There is no scientific explanation for that phenomenon. But it tells us mystically something, that the same Christ is present in one as in all. Incidentally, the, 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 the um, sacred species, this miracle, is exposed in the church for anyone who wishes to see. I've been there um, three times. And you can go up as close as this to the microphone and see for yourself. The five globules are there and the, and the host. And that's only one miracle. There are others. There's one in Santarém in Portugal. There was one in Germany. There's, there were several in, in France, Holland. And of course, we can say, well, how many centuries ago? But not so. In our own time, another Eucharistic miracle, which has been validated, approved by the Church, has occurred. In fact, two of them. The one that I want to speak about, or, or to, I'll tell you about, is happened four years ago. We were all alive four years ago, yes? And I'm going to read the bishop's letter. And I'm not going to pronounce the bishop's name because he is Polish and it's difficult. The bishop's letter. On December the 25th, 2013, at St. Jacek's parish, while distributing Holy Communion, a sacred host fell to the floor and was picked up and placed in a container of water. After some time, it, gave, it began to give a red appearance. The then Bishop of Lernica, Bishop Stefan Cicci, appointed a commission whose task was to observe the phenomenon. In February 2014, he removed a fragment of the red matter and deposited it on the corporal. In order to analyze the fragment, the commission ordered the taking of samples and conducted appropriate tests by different competent authorities. The final judgment of the Department of Forensic Medicine states, the histopathological tissue fragments were found containing a fragmented part of the skeleton muscle. The whole image is most similar to the heart muscle, as it appears under the strains of agony. Genetic studies indicate the origin as human tissue. In January this year, I presented the whole matter to the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith. Today, according to the Holy See, I recommend that the parish priest, Andres, the Ombres 
prepare a suitable place for the relic so that the faithful might give it honor. I also ask for visitors to be provided relevant information and to offer through catechesis to help properly form the faithful in their understanding of Eucharistic worship. Moreover, I am ordering that a book be provided to record any graces received or other supernatural events. I hope all of this will serve to deepen veneration for the Eucharist and profoundly impact the lives of those approaching the relic. We see this marvelous sign as a special expression of God's kindness and love, who so humbles himself before man. I cordially ask for your prayers and I bless you. And I apologize, I, I, I don't know how to pronounce Z-B-I-G-N-I-E-W. <laughs> so, um, but he's the Bishop of Ilinika. You can find this on the internet. You just Google Eucharistic miracles and you'll find a whole list of them. With, with the bishop, I hope that our veneration of the most holy sacrament, that our participation in the supreme sacrifice, the only sacrifice which takes away sins, might become more profound and more deeper and that Christ who loves us, who's humbled himself for us, will welcome each and every one of you, all of us, into his kingdom when he says, this day you'll be with me in paradise. Because we were created to know God, to love God, to serve God in this world, so that we might be forever happy with him in the next. God bless you. Any questions? I was asked a question um, privately, um, several questions actually. One of them was, do we need to receive under both kinds? And the answer is no, we do not. The only person who, who, who needs to receive under both kinds is the priest because he is acting in the person of Christ and therefore he has to consume the sacrifice. But for the laity, the faithful who receive, who are participating, they need to receive only under one form. One form is sufficient because you receive the whole Christ, body, blood, soul and divinity in either species and in every single particle. The second question um, concerned the Anglicans, um, especially those who have um, become Catholics. The, the, the Protestant churches, and the, includes the Anglican, from the time of the Reformation, 500 years ago, rejected the whole idea of the Eucharist as a sacrifice. Um, they regard it merely as a meal in which we remember Christ. They do not regard it even as a sacrament in which we receive grace, depending on, on um, 
their particular theology. But all of them, without exception, reject the whole idea of sacrifice. So when, if someone converts, if someone from one of the non-Catholic um, Christian bodies becomes a Catholic, they have to profess a faith in the Eucharist as understood and as believed and as taught by the Catholic Church. Um, and so th that's, that's the first thing, because if, if we, anyone who rejects the teaching of the, Catholic Church, of the Catholic Church about the Eucharist effectively rejects the Church. It's effectively a declaration, well, I don't believe. Well, if you don't believe, you can't be part of the body of Christ. You know, it's, it's, it's as simple as that. Because what we believe doesn't come from our own personal understanding or the understanding of every, any person. Rather, we believe that God has revealed this. And because God has revealed it, we believe it. So if we say we don't believe it, we say, well, God, I don't believe what you're telling me. That's effectively what we're saying. And on a human level, if we, if we belong to any particular group, we have to accept the, the principles, the um, teachings of the group. If we reject any part of it, we're not going part of the group. We, we start a new group, human, just humanly speaking. So it's, it's, it's very um, important that we, we um, believe what the church teaches. And if we find it difficult to believe, then pray about it. Ask the Lord to enlighten you. And he will. He will enlighten you. Because he wants us to believe. How many times in the gospel he says, believe? Think of Peter. He says, Lord, if this is you, it's in the middle of the night. Lord, there's a storm going on. The waves are going over the boat. Lord, if it's you walking on the waters, let me come to you. Come. Peter gets out of the boat, middle of the night, middle of the storm, and walks. Then we're told, he felt the force of the wind, and he saw the waves and he began to say, Lord, help me. What happened? The Lord reached out and held him. Pulled us. Man of little faith, why did you doubt? How far was Peter from the Lord? If the Lord was able to grab him, how far? In other words, the closer we get to the Lord, the more faith is required. We must not look away at the difficulties. We, look, we continue looking at him. Lord, that I might see, that I might understand, that I might believe. As, as the, 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 the man with, his, with the son who had, had a demon, he says, you people won't believe unless you see signs. He said, Lord, I do believe. Help my unbelief. So, yes, let us come to the Lord. Let us ask him. Help our unbelief. Let us believe. The greatest tribute we can, we can give to anyone is to believe what they tell us. When someone says, I don't believe you, how do you feel? Especially when you tell them the truth. Yeah? Yes, the greatest tribute we can give to someone is to say, I believe you. It means that I don't have any proof, but I know you're a good person. And that's what we're telling God when we believe. Any questions?
Yes, um, if you didn't hear the question, it says that um, when um, the priests and, or the Eucharistic extraordinary minister of the Eucharist distribute communion, they don't purify their fingers, you know, um, is it out of ignorance? I'd say yes, forgetfulness, again, not understanding, because we don't hear the teaching often. We need constantly be, to be reminded. I'll give you an example. Um, I'm sure you did simultaneous equations. I say that because I'm a mathematician. You did simultaneous equations in, in, in secondary school. Can you do them now? <laughs> you know, we, we need constantly be reminded of things so we keep it fresh. Um, so I, I would say most of the time it's simply out of ignorance, forgetfulness and not appreciating the greatness of the gift that we have. Um, and so it would be good to just to remind, remind um, them sometimes. You have to be very diplomatic how you do it. You know. This MP3 recording has been made available by Family Life International. Help us to make many more available in order to promote our Catholic faith. Go to www.familyandlife.org.uk and donate today. Mm -hmm.